This is lesson five of our study on the marks of a healthy church. We will be covering 12. Dever presents nine. This morning we are going to consider bonus mark number two. I'm introducing three in the course of this study. So this is bonus mark number two on confessional subscription. Uh, there is no reading in our book, uh, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, that corresponds to this lesson, therefore, but I will recommend a book to you, and in fact, I'll quickly overview it for you, The Creedal Imperative by Carl Truman. So if you want to read a book uh, to better understand this lesson, this is the one I would recommend to you. Uh, let's bow together for a word of prayer before we begin. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for this Lord's Day morning, and how refreshing the Lord's Day is to our souls, to cease from common work and recreations, to fix our attention squarely upon you, and to do it together is a great blessing, O oh God. I pray that you would bless this Lord's Day. I pray that you would bless this class, bless your people as they assemble for worship. Not too long from now, bless us in the afternoon as we consider your word again, sing and pray. I pray that this day would be rich, that it would be a nourishment to our souls, and above all else, that you would be glorified. I pray that you would help us to more and more understand what a healthy church is. I pray that you would move us towards greater health as a congregation. Uh, do help us, O Lord, to walk humbly before you, to come again and again to the Holy Scriptures, to consider what they require of us individually and as a congregation. Give us understanding, O Lord. We do long to see your name exalted in this place. We long to see your kingdom advanced. So we pray that you would use us towards this end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As I said, the book I want to recommend to you is The Creedal Imperative by Carl Truman. Here, Carl Truman. Does anyone know who he is? I, I really like Carl Truman. He is a, a wonderful writer. He's very... Fun, really, to listen to. He's quite a character, but he's produced some really great things, and uh, I've grown to appreciate him over the years. This book that he has written, The Creedal Imperative, is uh, very helpful. I was um, looking to see when it was written. It was uh, 2012, so I keep bringing books up, up to you that were written right in that 2010, 11, 12 uh, period of time. Uh, I didn't know about this until recently. I kept hearing people recommend it, and so I decided to pick it up and to read it in preparation for this um, lesson here and thought it would provide a really good framework for the things that I want to say to you. And you'll notice the handout for today is um, a book review on the creedal imperative uh, written by a man named Peter Hess. I don't know, I don't know who this, this man is. Um, I'm just not familiar with him. But notice where I found this book review. Can anyone see it at the very top there? This may be found at ninemarks.org. Um, so I thought, well, this is fitting. You know, I, I, I decided to use this book review as an outline for our lesson today uh, because it was uh, posted on the Nine Marks website. I thought that's, that's very fitting. Uh, I, I tried to say to you last week that I doubt... Um, I doubt Mark Dever would disagree with, with what I'm saying here, that though it is true we need to have sound gospel theology, though it is true we need to recover a sound doctrine of God, um, we, we can't stop there. I, I see what he's doing. He's trying to nudge the church in the right direction, I think, a church that is, in our age, very anti-doctrinal. He's trying to nudge them towards uh, sound doctrine, biblical theology, 
And he is right to say that we really need to start with the doctrine of God. Uh, But I'm wanting to say we need to go beyond that. We need to recover um, an appreciation for and even subscription to the ancient creeds and confessions of of the church. There's a real benefit here, and churches um, benefit greatly from being aware of these creeds and confessions and even uh, from subscribing to them. So I thought it was interesting that this book was reviewed on the Nine Mark site, and it was reviewed in a positive way. It was recommended there. And so I don't think there's any real disagreement with what I'm saying here by adding this bonus mark number two, confessional subscription. I suppose I should start by by answering the question, what is a creed and what is a confession, before going through an overview of Carl Truman's book. Does anybody know? uh, How would you define a creed or a confession of faith? Um, They're they're very similar in some ways. They're a little bit different. But yes, Tom. Okay, creeds are shorter uh, than confessions. Yes? Okay, yes. Both state the faith. Both state that both either they confess in their own way what it is that we believe to be true. Creeds are much more brief. They're very, very short declarations of the the very core or essence of the Christian faith. Okay, so they're, they're both attempts to take the clear teaching of Holy Scripture and to formulate. The, the essence of them in our own words and to bring them forth saying, here is what we believe to be true about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here is the essence of the Christian faith. But it, yes, it's been noted that creeds are very brief, whereas confessions are much larger. Who can name some creeds from the early church? The Apostles' Creed. Nicene Creed. Athanasian Creed. Chalcedonian definition. Also, we we encountered that one in our study on the doctrine of Christ, right? So there are a number of famous creeds from the early church. Uh, They're all fairly brief. The Apostles' Creed is very brief. It can be recited in public worship. The Nicene Creed can as well. Some of these others start to get a little bit bigger. They're a little harder to use in, in, uh, in corporate worship. Who can name some of the famous confessions of faith? Let's stick with our tradition, I guess, within the Reformed tradition. There are confessions of faith belonging to other traditions, too. Westminster Confession of Faith, the the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, um, Savoy Declaration, Augsburg, yes, that's uh, Lutheran, right? And then... um, what is our confession of faith? It is the the. It goes by different names. Um, 1689 confession, the the second London Baptist confession, the uh, London Baptist confession of faith, 1677. People call it by different names, but it's all referring to the same confession of faith. It's, it's it consists of 32 chapters, uh, but still it is dealing with essential things. You know, not tangential things. It's de- dealing with essential things, and uh, what Carl Truman does in uh, this book here, The Creedal Imperative, is he tries to make a case for uh, the, the importance of and the usefulness of creeds uh, within the church. In fact, he goes beyond that to say that it is biblical, that, that the scriptures actually uh, teach that we are to have these confessions of faith. Um, in fact, in 2 Timothy 1.3, uh, 
Paul tells Timothy to follow the pattern of sound words that had been entrusted to him. Think about that. Paul told Timothy to follow the pattern of sound words that had been entrusted to him. It's really interesting to think of this transition between the apostolic age and uh, the age after the apostles passed from this earth. Uh, Really, this relationship between Paul and Timothy illustrates the whole transition between these eras. Uh, The day would come when Paul and the rest of the apostles would die and others would lead within the church. They would not be apostles, for they were not eyewitnesses to the life, death, burial, and resurrection of of Christ. Um, They would not be apostles. They would be pastors and teachers. And they would not speak with apostolic authority or prophetic authority even. They were called to do something else. They were called to take the faith that had been given to them, they were to defend it, they were to proclaim it, or to use the language of 2 Timothy 1.13, they were to be sure to follow the pattern of sound words that had been entrusted uh, to them. And there are indications in the scriptures that there were creedal, very brief and simple creedal f- formulas and statements that were present in even the age of the apostles, that the apostles themselves were involved with formulating these so that the faith might be passed on from generation to generation. Uh, So Truman uh, makes a case for the importance of creeds and confessions in the church. As I said, he even makes a case that it is biblical. Truman begins the book with an antidote about a preacher who held the Bible in his right hand and said, this is our only creed and confession. That's a very popular view today. I'm sure you're aware of that. Uh, This, the Bible, is our only creed and confession. Before I go further, is there something good about that statement? Is, is there something good about it? I'm wanting to say yes. What, do, what does that preacher mean when he says that? This is our only creed and confession. What is the good thing that he means? What is the good thing that he seeks to uphold? This is our ultimate authority. Uh, we are bound to believe what this says. This is the word of God. And his concern is that we do not elevate a man-made document above this or even even put it on equal plane as this. And so there's a sense where we should look at that preacher and, and hear his words and say, I understand what you're trying to do and it is commendable. You are wanting us to honor the word of God as our supreme authority. And we share that conviction. The very first line of our confession of faith clarifies that the Word of God is our authority. It is our authority in matters of, of, of faith. And so there is some good in it, and we need to acknowledge it. It is a statement that has a noble and pious ring, but it is ultimately false, and, and I would agree with that statement too. Uh, Truman aptly points out that everyone has a creed and a confession. Everyone holds to a particular summary and synthesis of what the Bible teaches. The difference is that some make their creed explicit by writing it down, while others do not. That, that's really the issue here. This is, our own, this is our only creed and confession. There's some truth to it. That What he should say is this is our sole authority for, for, for faith, for things pertaining to the faith. This is, this is our authority. Um, but the reality is that this, and here I'm talking about the Bible, it has to be interpreted, doesn't it? And the teachings of it have to be synthesized. Preachers are not called to simply stand up and read the scriptures and close them and sit down. 
Jesus did that once, <laughs> but he was claiming to be the fulfillment of the passage he just read, a very powerful thing. But preachers are called to read the Word of God, and then they are to comment on it, right? They're to make comments on the Scriptures. And in the moment you begin to comment on Scriptures, in the moment you begin to explain them, you are doing something other than just presenting the Bible. You're, you're actually interpreting the Bible and presenting that interpretation uh, to the people. So everyone has a creed. Everyone has a confession. Most churches, I don't know of any really, that don't have at least a brief s- uh, um, statement of faith you know, that is made publicly available so that people might know what that church believes. Um, and the reality is that within those churches, there's a broader consensus within the minds of the pastor and the people, the elders, the deacons, as to what the doctrines of that church are. There's a, there's a confession of faith present in those anti-confessional churches, but it's only in their minds and hearts. It's not in writing. So the creedal imperative demonstrates both the value of creeds and confessions while the light for the life of the local church and the serious consequences that follow if we refuse to make our doctrinal beliefs explicit in writing. What, what are some of the consequences, in your opinion, brothers and sisters, uh, that follow if we refuse to make our doctrinal beliefs explicit in writing? What do you think? Anyone? Heresy can creep into the church. I agree. Anyone else? Disunity within the church. How so? Well, go ahead. Yes. I just said that there's a confession of faith not in writing, but in the minds of, and hearts of the pastor and the elders, the deacons, the congregation. Uh, but you're bringing out the fact of the matter, uh, that the confession of faith that is not written, but is only in the minds and hearts of the people, is going to be different from person to person, or at least from faction to faction within the church. We found this to be true in our, in our history, uh, that when a theological question is posed quickly you see where those fault lines are within the congregation. People have a, a, a confession of faith in their mind, and you, you can see very quickly where the disagreements are when uh, difficulties arise. Okay, so heresy can creep in. There's actual disunity that can exist within the church where there is no explicit uh, written uh, confession of faith. Um, this this phrase has been in my mind in preparation for this lesson. I've brought it up with you before. I'll probably continue to bring it up throughout my ministry. You've heard it said that doctrine divides and Jesus unites. I know you've heard that phrase. Doctrine divides, Jesus unites. What do those who use that phrase mean by it? Doctrine divides, Jesus unites. What do they mean by it when they use that phrase? Yes, so what they want is for us to stop talking about doctrine, to stop debating doctrine, to stop focusing on doctrine, and to focus only on Jesus. Would you critique that, please, so, I, I'm clear, so that I know that you have a, an answer to that, uh, that, 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 that statement? How do we know who Jesus is if we don't uh, follow the correct doctrine? So how do we know who Jesus is if we don't uh, follow correct doctrine or talk about doctrine? Tom? 
<laughs> Jesus himself said he came to divide. And I'm going to follow that statement up with my own in just a minute. And it has a lot to do with what you just said. Yeah. Anything else? Um, Scott, did you have something? Yes, if you can't speak of doctrine, you can't have a spiritual conversation. Those two things go hand in hand. In fact, a doctrine does enrich us spiritually, and we can enrich one another. Iron sharpens iron. I restate it for the sake of the recording. Um, but yeah, very good. Jesus taught doctrine. The scriptures teach doctrine from beginning to end. Uh, the Christian faith is doctrine. <laughs> there's a there's a pattern of sound teaching that we are called to. Uh, follow The faith is not just a personal trust in Jesus. It is also a body of doctrine. So to have a doctrineless Christianity is to have, I know this sounds extreme, but to have a doctrineless Christianity is to have no Christianity at all. Uh, to have Christ with no doctrine is to have no Christ at all. You have The two things, in fact, go uh, hand, in, hand in glove with each other. Danny. We're supposed to worship God in spirit and in truth. So doctrine divides, Jesus unites. Is there some truth in that statement? Again, I, I think, yeah, we can identify what people are after when they say that. They're, want, they're not wanting the people of God to be divided over perhaps non-essential issues. Um, I, I understand that. And sure, there are some things that we can put into the category of non-essentials. I just think um, the the... the the essential doctrines, they're, they're more in number than we realize, you know. Um, yes, yeah, so, it, you know, a church can develop a very contentious spirit and can begin to debate every fine nuance of doctrine, and that could be a real problem. Pride can creep in, and, and we can begin to bite and devour one another, and that is to be guarded against. We do need to focus on our shared union in Christ Jesus. So there's a little bit of truth in it, but as a whole, I think that statement just needs to be utterly Rejected. It, it is. It is untrue. It is unhelpful. Scott. Doctrine divides is a, is a fallacy. Doctrine doesn't divide. Human depravity. Doctrine doesn't divide. It's human depravity that divides. Well said. And here's my follow-up statement. The one that I want to come back with to the one who says a doctrine divides, Jesus unites. I want to say Jesus divides and doctrine unites. In fact, and uh, Jesus Himself said that He came to bring division. Uh, what did he mean by that? Not division within the church, of course, but Jesus divides, and, and how so? Well, he divides his people from the world. He, he sets the sheep off from the goats, does he not? He, he calls his church out of the world to be a distinct people, to be a distinct people. There is something exclusive about the church. I'm not saying that we should have an exclusive air about us, an arrogance about us. I'm not saying that we should be unwelcoming to the visitor. I'm not saying that we should be heartless when it comes to the world and the salvation of the world, but there is something exclusive about the church. What is it? It is our, it is our shared faith in Christ that distinguishes us from the world. It is those who have faith in Christ who are invited to the waters of baptism and then to the table the church is not the world. There is to be a distinction between the church and the world that must be maintained. If it is not maintained, then there is no church. <laughs> there is no Christian faith, and so it must be maintained. Jesus, in fact, 
divides. And then how does he unite his people? His people are united in him, and they are, in fact, united in the truth. They, they are united by the doctrine. And so I agree wholeheartedly with uh, what uh, Truman is proposing in this book. He is saying that for the health of the church, we need to have robust statements, creedal statements and confessional statements concerning the truth. And in fact, the church will be, benefit greatly from these. And one of the ways the church will be benefited is, is, is in their unity. These statements of faith, be they brief or large, have a way of bringing people together and uniting them in the truth of the gospel. Okay, and so that's my little sermon at the beginning of this lesson. I wanted to just very quickly move through this, or at least part of this um, this book review, because the first part of it just simply overviews this the content of this book. Uh, Over the course of six chapters, Truman makes his case for what he terms confessional Protestantism. In chapter 1, he demonstrates that those who claim to hold no creed or confession but the Bible are are probably more influenced by modern cultural forces than they realize. They are probably more influenced by modern cultural forces than they realize. What cultural forces do you think Truman points to? What he does here is he says, listen, there are some things about the modern world in which we live that are very much anti-confessional, anti-confessional. To to propose that we subscribe to a confession of faith as a minister who believes that we should, it does feel like you are swimming upstream big time. You're swimming upstream, you're fighting against the current of the culture, and sadly you're also fighting against the culture that exists within uh, the, the Protestant world, the evangelical world, even. Not just the non-believing world, but the, the, the Christian culture as well. There are some things about the time in which we live that make proposing a confession of faith very difficult. What are some of the cultural factors, if you were to guess? Jody. Intolerance? What do you mean by that? Uh, okay. So uh, we would, by by saying this is the truth, we would be viewed as intolerant. Uh, the, the, the spirit of our age is to be tolerant to the extreme, and to say there is no absolute truth. Um, that's your opinion. This is mine, and we're both right. End of story. He actually addresses that in this book to say that there is there, there is a kind of intolerance that must be avoided. And there's a good reason why people are leery of it, because history is marked by really, really sad and awful and horrendous examples of intolerance, you know, racial intolerance, um, religious intolerance, so on and so forth. So people are leery of that, but to the extreme, I think. Um, there's no ultimate truth. Truth is subjective. So why in the world would you have a confession of faith that is so dogmatic. Were you going to say subjectivism? Um, truth, is, yeah, relativism. Uh, truth is relative. Everything is subjective. No absolute truth. Lindsay. Um, so, I don't know if our culture today is ourselves. Christian people are broader Christian culture. Christian culture is ourselves. Like, we more supreme. And why do we need to look to the older? Ah, uh, yeah. 
so I don't know what number this is, but you actually, you guessed one of them, uh, so did Jody. Um, devaluing the past, uh, chronological snobbery, I've heard it called. This idea that we, we have evolved and we are far beyond our knuckle-dragging ancestors. When you read our knuckle-dragging ancestors, you quickly see that we are the knuckle-draggers, you know. <laughs> is, is that an expression, knuckle Yes, it is. Yeah, I, I mean, seriously, we, we have devolved. I'm quite confident of it. He actually men- mentioned science here, or scientism. We really have this idea that we have made so much scientific progress in our modern era, which I think is questionable as well. Um, but but we, are, we are supreme to those who've gone before us. So why do we need to listen to these these primitive men who were writing creeds in the 4th and 5th century AD what do they what do they have to say to us we have iPhones after all we have the internet we have wikipedia and therefore who are they to say anything to us devaluing the past anything else robin Biblical illiteracy along with historical illiteracy, we don't know the past, therefore we, because of that also, we devalue the past. Under the heading devaluing the past, Truman mentions science, technology, consumerism also, um, the disappearance of human nature, words, mysticism, and pragmatism, all of that under the devaluing of the past. He's, he's pointing to some features, so I, I'm just throwing these out there to you really quickly maybe to pique your interest in Truman's book here. I think he does, a, this is one of the things he's good at. He's good at critiquing uh, the, the, our, our current culture uh, and, and showing us the trends in the modern culture and critiquing them. Uh, he's done that in some more recent publications. Um, I don't have the time to go through all of these in detail. Any other thoughts on things about our modern culture that might make adopting creeds and confessions Difficult. Yes, so the idea that truth evolves over time, perhaps human nature might even. They, they think might evolve over time, so why lock ourselves into an ancient uh, a document at all? Um, I, I think, yeah, there's lots of things. The whole evolutionary theory, you know, uh, it, it doesn't, it, it hasn't just affected our view of uh, physiology. It, it, it has crept into our view of um, the very nature of man, of, of religion. The evolutionary theory has impacted religion, too, more than you might realize. Uh, so that Statements that anchor us in the past are, are, yeah. Is that what you meant by liberalism? Statements that anchor us to something in the past are viewed as not necessary and even a hindrance to us. After all, we are evolving even in our religious views. Uh, Scott. Yeah, I was going to say uh, kind of on Teaching. They want to just kind of 
experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Postmodernism, not wanting to be pinned down to anything concrete. Um, also, a lot of people, they, they want to feel their religion more than they want to think about the religion. You know, that is a trend in our age. They want experience, you know. Can we turn this off? Yeah. Um, A lack of reading in general. Well, we do read, but it's like Twitter length stuff. You know. I mean, who's reading 300 page nonfiction books anymore? Yeah, we, we, we read at a, at a Twitter level, and when we do read articles, we read the synopsis of them only, but not books. Yeah, there's a problem here. Um, two other things I was thinking about really quickly before moving on, and Truman mentions anti authoritarianism. People distrust authority, they, especially in America, I think. Um, we, we, we distrust authority structures, and we even distrust them in the church and certainly in the form of a document written by, I'll just say it, Truman says it in here, I, I think. Um, the, a lot of these documents were written by um, old and now dead white men, right? And um, you can't trust old white men uh, in, in our culture. That's really the, the trend. And what do they have to say to us? Well, because, and he makes this point in here, what do we share in common with old dead white men who wrote in the 4th century A.D. or in the 17th century A.D.? What do we share in common with them? Uh, maybe not a whole lot except this little tiny thing called human nature. But notice how that's not what we emphasize these days. Our union together as human beings, we, we are divided by many things. We're divided by class. We're divided by race. Um, that is the trend, and there's lots of distrust between these factions within our world today. What people need to remember today, and as it pertains to the past as well, is that we share human nature in common. Men and women, uh, all of the different... Uh, races, they, they share human nature in common, and therefore, in fact, we have a lot to learn from those who went before us, even if they lived in a different time and place and a different culture with different color skin and with different worldviews slightly. We have a lot to learn from them. Okay, uh, anti-authoritarianism, and then uh, I wanted to mention also radical individualism as well. Um, and the two are obviously connected there. Um, but Christianity today in our world is very, very individualistic. Everything is about your personal relationship with Jesus, you know, your personal devotional life, uh, your personal spiritual life, to the radical neglect of the corporate. And not only do people neglect the local church today uh, and see no reason to be a member of a local church in any sort of formal sense, people neglect the universal church uh, going back into history to the time of Christ and in some ways even before that into the old covenant era. Creeds and confessions connect us with one another. Um, they connect us with the past, with the church universal in the past and with the church universal uh, today. We're in an association of churches and sometimes I look at these churches and, and the members and the pastors, we're, we're so different from one another in terms of our individual church cultures, our personalities, if you will. We're very different from one another, from church to church and from pastor to pastor. 
Why do we come together quarterly? Why do the messengers meet together? Why are we in formal association with one another? What has brought us together? Is it our friendship that has brought us together? Is it our shared interests in other things besides Christ and the Word of God? No, it's, it's our confession of faith that brings us together. Uh, and so confessions have a way of getting us outside of our extreme individualism and bringing us together in a corporate sense today and even connecting us with, with the past. I spent more time on that than I was anticipating. Um, but, yeah, I think Truman does a great job at just helping to bring out how perhaps those who hold this no creed but the Bible position have been influenced greatly by our modern culture. In chapter 2, he argues from Scripture that the motto, no creed but the Bible, is not as biblical as it might seem. The crux of Truman's argument is his exposition of 2 Timothy 1, on pages 72 through 79. There, Paul commands Timothy to hold fast the form of sound words he had received from Paul. Truman writes, to claim to have no creed but the Bible then is problematic. The Bible itself seems to demand that we have forms of sound words, and that is what creeds are. Indeed, as Truman points out, the command of verse 13 comes directly after Paul gives Timothy just such a form in first, or 2 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. And so he says that within the Scriptures himself we have evidence for the development of these these creed-like statements, which are forms of sound doctrine. I hope you are listening to that podcast I host called Theology in Particular. You might just find some interesting little nuggets in there. Um, I just recorded two episodes with Dr. Sam Rinehan from Trinity Reformed Baptist Church on the doctrine of the descent, but a lot of it centers around a phrase in the Apostles' Creed, He descended to hell. You might find that... uh, those episodes on the doctrine of the descent interesting. And then I do have plans to record with Dr. Jason Montgomery. He's a pastor in Texas. Um, I think we're going to record in the 1st of May. Uh, But I'm going to do a series with him on uh, the apostolic era. He he, he earned a PhD by by, um, focusing on that era, the the apostolic age, the age, I'm sorry, um, the age of the church fathers immediately after the, uh, the, the age of the apostles. Was that? Huh? The patristics. Yeah, sorry, I was uh, having a hard time finding the word. And so I think one of the things we're going to do is look at some of the documents that came out of that era, some of the councils that uh, came together, some of the early creeds uh, that came out of that era. You might find all of that interesting. Um, but it, it, it grew. These creeds and confessions did grow right out of the the age of the apostles themselves. There's even evidence in the Bible itself for the formulation of these sorts of statements that summarize the truth of the faith. In chapter 3, Truman moves from scriptural to historical arguments. He observes that from the earliest times, churches have formulated creeds and confessions. He begins with the rule of faith and the apostles' creed and then deals with creeds of the second ecumenical councils. I think it is interesting to note that these creeds were, were developed really in response to heresies that were threatening the church. And that's important to note. Um, There were heresies that were threatening the church, let's say, concerning the doctrine of Christ. Is He fully God? And what is the relationship between Christ and, and God? And how are we to talk about that? What about His human nature? Was He truly human? In our study on Christology, we looked at a lot of that, didn't we, in, in that introduction to the doctrine of Christ. And so creeds were developed in order to 
protect the church from error and also in order to help identify those who are making credible professions of faith. So the church was defended, as it were, by the development of these early creeds. And that practice has continued throughout the history of the church. With, with every creed, new questions are raised and more problems uh, press in upon the church. And so there is this constant need for further uh, clarification you know, that arises. And we would argue that really the high point of this creedal uh, development comes in the, in the 17th century in the Reformed Confessions. One of them is, is the one that we subscribe to. You know, we have a very robust and well-rounded and well-developed system of doctrine that is stated clearly uh, that serves to defend the church uh, against error. In chapter 4, Truman surveys the creeds and confessions of the 16th and 17th centuries. He highlights how each confession linked itself to the ancient creeds of the church as well as built upon them. It's a really wonderful section. I hope that you read this book someday. Uh, so he talks about the confessions of the 16th and 17th century. Uh, he does mention the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Second London Confession of Faith, but he deals with others too. And notice this little line here. He highlights how each confession linked itself to the ancient creeds of the church. In other words, these men who wrote these confessions in the 17th century uh, were not starting from scratch. They were building upon earlier creeds, uh, the, Apostles, um, the Apostles' Creed and, and others. You can see that clearly in the content. In, five, in chapter 5, he makes a case for using creeds and confessions in the formal gatherings of the local church. He notes that in Paul's writings, doctrine and doxology are not separated. The truths of the gospel drive him and again, and again, in, again and again to praise. Um, as I have opportunity to teach more on uh, these ancient creeds, it is my desire to use them more and more in the liturgy here at Emmaus. A lot of Reformed churches will recite the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Uh, in public worship, perhaps before partaking of the Lord's Supper. We have done that in the past, but in, I've also noticed that we probably need to grow in our understanding of these creeds a little bit more before we uh, recite them with regularity. And so it is one of, my, uh, one of the things that I would like to do is to provide more teaching on these things so we can understand what we're doing when we recite them together. In chapter 6, Truman concludes his argument by noting several ways that creeds and confessions are beneficial to the health of a local church. Um, the review, as I said, that is posted on the Nine Marks web website is positive. It's a very useful book. Uh, there are three reasons why this book is useful, and I'm not going to go through all of this with you. It's a skillful, he's a skillful critic of modern culture. He displays th uh, th strong theology. Um, here the reviewer refers to this as putting forth a broad-chested theology, and I, I like that language. Uh, it's true. It's not a, a meager uh, statement of faith that is being proposed here, but broad-chested, strong theology, a robust confession of faith is what is being proposed here. Um, worth the price of admission. Maybe misdirected. There's a little bit of a critique here. I don't know what I think about that. Um, who should read it? Pastors, in interested church members, says the reviewer. Um, by way of, of uh, conclusion here, I, I just wanted to very quickly give you an overview of, in my mind, the benefit of uh, creeds and confessions within the local church. Some of this has already been said, but I wanted to say it directly by way of conclusion. Uh, creeds and confessions state the faith clearly and succinctly. 
so that the faith might be defended, so that the faith might be taught, also so that the faith might be put on display. Creeds and confessions state the faith so that the faith might be defended from heresy, taught faithfully and consistently to the people of God, and also put on display uh, for others to look in upon and see uh, when your confession of faith is not published. No one else can see it to benefit from it or even to offer critique of it, um, to say, is this biblical or not, so that challenges might be brought. Um, It is important, I think, for these statements of faith, these confessions, to be displayed. Uh, State These confessions of faith do exclude. We've already touched upon this. And what way do they exclude? Well, they, they draw boundary lines, don't they? They draw boundary lines. Here is the faith. And here is what is to be believed if your profession of faith is to be considered true. Uh, the earlier creeds are really useful for this because they're more, they're more succinct even. Um, but confessions of faith are beneficial for this too. Uh, how do they exclude here at Emmaus? Well, we subscribe to the Second Lenin Confession of Faith, also the Baptist Catechism. Well, in this way, new members are taken through these documents, at least quickly, And they are asked to state if they have any disagreements with these doctrines. And if the disagreements are super substantial, we might say, this this isn't going to work. If the disagreement is over the doctrine of the Trinity, for for example, as an obvious example. Um, There might be minor disagreements. Okay, then we, we at least know and we can encourage the person not to stir up controversy within the church. So, uh, the confession is used to bring in new members. It is also used... Uh, to protect the eldership and the deaconship of the church. The elders and deacons of this church fully subscribe to the Second London Confession of Faith. And if there are questions or scruples about the confession, those can be dealt with, of course. And if they are minor, then they might be able to uh, be be worked with. Uh, But there are boundary lines that are drawn by the confession, and those boundary lines are very helpful. They're needed to protect the church from, from error and from doctrinal shift over time to protect the church from the intrusion of those who do not truly believe and who might be wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, But also confessions of faith draw boundary lines, and in so doing, they include, uh, there's an inclusive uh, benefit to confessions as well. When boundary lines are drawn, when it is said, here is the the faith, uh, they exclude those who do not believe from the membership of the church. They exclude those who have poor or weak doctrine from the eldership and deaconship of, of the church. But they also include the boundary lines enable us to look around and say, here are other churches with whom we fully agree on these things. We might have differences of opinion about other matters, but we agree on these things. Therefore, we can link arms together. Uh, Also, the membership of the church is stabilized by the presence of a confession of faith because we know that the members who've been brought into this church have a like faith. We, We share the faith, the Christian faith in common, and those things have been clearly articulated, and new members have been vetted. Uh, To clarify, uh, just um, for the sake of not being misunderstood by those who might listen to this, I don't know if anyone ever listens to our recordings on our uh, Sunday school classes, but we do not require members to fully subscribe to the Second London Confession of Faith in the same way we require elders and deacons to fully subscribe to it. We have to be able to receive brand new believers into the body of Christ here, don't we? And if you put the Second London Confession of Faith in front of a brand new believer, they're probably going to be a bit overwhelmed by that thing, don't you think? Um, And so there does have to be room for people to grow in their knowledge of the truth. 
but nevertheless, that document will be put before all prospective members so that the doctrines of the church collectively are honestly made known to them and so that they can move forward with confidence knowing what the church believes and so that we can move forward with them knowing what they believe and if there are differences of opinion where they, where they exist. Any questions about all this? Um, I think it is important for this to be included as a mark of a healthy church. Um, is that our... Yeah, is that what I'm just... People are looking around and I think it's our uh, projector here, right? Yeah. Too much heat. Yeah, up in the uh, rafters. Any questions? Statements? We're out of time anyways. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of the Word of God and the way that it is a light to our feet. I pray that we would be faithful to the Holy Scriptures in our lives individually and as a congregation. We also thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone before us, who have been concerned to know the truth and to uphold the truth of the Bible some even having put it down in writing for us. We thank you for their courage, for their clarity of mind, for their tremendously, um, for their for their tremendous and hard work that they have put into these documents. I pray that we would not be so arrogant so as to disregard them. Help us to, in an appropriate way, stand upon their shoulders so that the church might flourish in our day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.